Hi, and welcome to another edition of Dr. Dark After Dark, number 36, discussions with Brent Johnson. So Brent will be known to many listeners, but he's the founder of Santiago Capital, uh, which is a wealth management firm in the US. And Brent's very well known for his uh, dollar milkshake thesis, but we're going to go beyond the milkshake today. And we're going to briefly cover what dollar milkshake is, but there are loads of videos uh, and podcasts and ways you can go into it in much, much more detail. And the reason we're doing this is because the most common question I get is, could, could we talk about how to construct a portfolio when you have a certain thesis? And so I thought the best way to do that is just to go through some examples because no one can structure your portfolio for you because everyone's different and everyone's in a completely different situation. So as always, this is not investment advice. Please do your own research. Welcome, Brent. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking to you. Great. All right. So why don't we start with, a, could you give a kind of a quick outline of what is the dollar milkshake thesis? I think most people will be aware, but some might not. So. Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the people who are, are familiar with it are probably sick of it. And the people that haven't heard of it, uh, I'll give you a quick, I'll give you a quick overview. Long story short, I think that the whole world, not just the United States, but the whole world is dramatically over indebted. And I think as we come to the end of this debt super cycle, uh, we're going to have a number of defaults around the world. And as we have defaults, I think that's going to push the dollar higher, not lower, like is the popular narrative right now. And as the dollar goes higher, because the rest of the world has borrowed so much in U.S. dollars, that's going to put extreme pressure on them. It will create a vicious cycle, which will push even more capital into the U.S. dollar. And once it flows into the U.S. dollar, I think that, that those funds will also flow into U.S. assets. So I think we're going to get, after we have a, another pullback in equities, which I do think will come, once we start to have this global debt crisis and this global currency crisis, I think capital will flow to the United States. And I think U.S. equities will go much, much higher. And the name comes from the fact that I think the U.S. is going to be drinking the milkshake or the liquidity that the rest of the world is going to print in mass. And I think the U.S. is going to print as well. So it's not that the U.S. Is, is fine and everybody else is in trouble. The whole world is in trouble. But for a number of reasons, I think people are going to be forced to buy dollars, even if they don't want to buy dollars. And that is uh, going to play out over the next call. It, let's call it two to three, four years. Cool. And, and when did you first think of it? When did it kind of come up? Uh, well, you know, <laughs> interestingly enough, it, it came up, uh, it started to develop in 2015. Well, actually, I should take that back. I, I would say that the early stages of it started at the end of 2014 when the dollar rose dramatically. And for several reasons, I didn't think the dollar should be rising, but it was. And it kind of forced me to go take a second look at and so I initially just thought it was what it was. But, you know, after about six months, I kind of started thinking, well, you know, it's probably not nothing. It, it probably rallied for a certain reason. So why did it rally? So I started digging into that. And I also felt for several reasons that gold should have been rising and it wasn't. Um, and so it was really a, a matter of digging into my thesis on why I, why I thought gold should be rising and the dollar falling. And instead, both were doing the opposite. You know, the dollar was rising and gold was falling. And so I kind of had to go back and check my thesis. And in really digging into that, 
that's when what I realized that I had done um, with my dollar and my gold thesis was that I had done a very good job, in my opinion, of analyzing the United States. The problem was, is I analyzed the United States in a vacuum and I didn't consider Europe or Japan or China or South America, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the reality is, is that fiat currencies trade versus each other. Now, they, it's possible that all fiat currencies fall versus gold. But you, but but if you have a, a a lineup of ten different fiat currencies, one of them is going to outperform all of the others. I mean that's it's just the way it works. And I probably didn't do a good enough job of of thinking through that and thinking that the and thinking through the fact that the rest of the world was in just as big a trouble as the United States. And once I realized that one of the primary drivers of currency demand is currency debt, debt in that currency. And then I realized that the rest of the world had taken out a dramatic amount of U.S. dollar debt. Um, then I realized, well, you know, a lot of times when people analyze currencies and especially thinking negatively about currencies, they're focused solely on the supply of the currency. The Fed's going to print, the ECB is going to print, the Bank of Japan is going to print, and therefore the currency must fall. Well, the problem with that is that it's solely focused on the supply side and it, you don't even think about the demand side. So as part of this whole revisiting of the thesis, I also realized that I'd been focusing on the supply side as well, and I wasn't focused on the demand side. And once I looked at that, then I realized that the demand for the dollar is, you know, is leagues higher than the demand for any other fiat currency. And so if you get into a situation where everybody's printing, then you also have to, and, and it's kind of a race for, for, for supply side, well, then you have to really focus on the demand side. And it's my belief that the demand for the dollar will far outstrip the demand for any other currency. And therefore, since everybody's printing, the dollar will outperform all the other fiat currencies. Now, it may very well fall versus gold or something like that. But versus all the other currencies, I think the dollar is going to uh, go much higher. And then it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy as the dollar goes higher. It puts even more pressure on the rest of the world. Um, they'll have to print even more. The dollar goes higher. So... Um, it was kind of it was kind of a light bulb moment for me, to be honest, um, when I first realized that the dollar was going to get stronger versus the other currencies rather than fall. And then I started thinking through, OK, well, if the dollar gets stronger, what are people going to do with the dollars? Uh, well, they're probably not just going to sit in cash. Interest rates are so low. They're probably going to buy, you know, some kind of an asset that will you know, give them some kind of return, whether it's an income producing asset or a capital appreciation asset. Um, and then, you know, it was kind of, uh, that, that I'd say that's how it started. And, you know, it, 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 it was, it's kind of a bit of developing theory. Um, but I guess it, I would say it really started, um, you know, kind of in the 2015, 2016 timeframe. And, and has, has 2020 changed it at all? I mean, in, in, in March, it sort of played out right in many ways. Dollar got very strong. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and of course it's sort of been just chopping around the last few months and kind of. It's not really making up its mind yet. Um, right. Is anything actually, I mean, it's been such a crazy year. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, the interesting thing is, is that there's been several people who have said to me, you know, Brent, uh, it was a good thesis and it actually played out. It didn't play out to the extent you thought it would, but it did play out. And now it's time to go the other way. You know, it's just, it's over. And my, my response has been what happens so far was kind of a, precursor to what I see happening. Uh, but I think if anything, I'm early. I don't think I'm late. Uh, I don't think by any means I'm late. Um, I do think it's possible 
that this takes longer to play out than many people think. I've spoken to many people who think that this is all going to be over in six to 12 months. I just don't think it is. I, I think, I think it could be over that soon. Um, but I think it's more than likely going to take two to three years to fully play out. Um, you know, these big macro themes, they always seem to take longer than you think they can. And, um, you know, I think the central bankers and monetary authorities, the people that say that they're out of bullets and that, you know, it's all going to come crashing down because they have nothing left, left, left to do. I think that's misguided. I think central bankers and monetary authorities have a plethora of tools that they can use, not to mention doubling down on the tools they've already used. And so I think what's going to happen is we're going to have these these periods where the dollar does very well. They come out and they do something to try to weaken it. It'll work for a little bit um, and things will go back to normal. And then, you know, we'll have another crisis where the dollar will rally again. They'll do something else that'll pull back. But I, but I think it's going to stair step higher. I don't think uh, um, I don't think that, uh, you know, we're necessarily just going from, you know, what are we at? 93, 93 to 120 overnight. Um, and I and I can't rule out the fact that, you know, it could pull back in the short term. Um, but but I just think before this is all said and done um, that it's going to end with the dollar spiking, not the dollar, not the dollar crashing. Yeah, and that's good advice on taking longer, because uh, often people ask me about, you know, especially re related to options. So people, are, oh, Christian, you might think X is going to happen, but how how long, you know, basically until expiry should you be buying? And my point to them is always just a lot longer than you think, <laughs> um, which of course yeah. means you can't always, it's not always liquid, different options markets that long. Um, but, you know, for example, you know, on my kind of the, the gold call options I have, they're going out like two, two and a half years. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's kind of, um, I think it's always, always good. Always, it's like when you build a house, it's going to cost three times more and take three times longer. So Right. No, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and I think, I think that, I think that, you know, this, this is going to kind of get into a little bit of, um, you know, portfolio management for lack of a better word, but, you know, it, 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 it kind of depends on what it is you're trying to achieve, right? Of course, at the end of the day, everybody wants to make money. That's the whole point of investing is making money. But, you know, if you are already of a certain net worth or, 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 or have a portfolio of a certain size, unless there's a certain reason why you, why you need to beat the S&P 500 every year, you don't have to beat the S&P 500 every year. I think for, and I'm not really sure, maybe, maybe this is another side effect of, um, you know, the, the passive, the passive wave that has kind of engulfed the whole industry over the last 10, 20 years. Uh, everybody feels like they need to be at BTS and P 500. And, and I, it just seems like an arbitrary, um, you know, goal for me. Um, sure. I mean, I understand if, if, if you want to get the S and P 500 type returns and you want to outperform it, that, that that's a great goal to have, but, but why you have to have it or, or why so many people make that their benchmark is a little surprising to me. Um, you know, if, if, if you have a portfolio that if it generates 4% a year that, that covers your expenses and allows you to sleep at night and, you know, allows you to accomplish your goals, well, then there's no reason um, that you have to try to beat the S&P 500. You can if you want to, but I think, I think it gets ingrained in people's psyche somewhere that if, if they're not beating the S&P 500 every year, uh, that they're not doing a good job of managing their money. And I, I just think that that's, I think it's completely false. No, I agree on that. I think it's also 
it's not uniquely American because it's the same attitude in China about beating the indexes there. But I think in Europe, there's less of this attitude. Um, well, for a start, you've got obviously lots of different indices, but yeah. know, when I was in the UK, people didn't talk about the FTSE very much. I, th there's no right. Jim Cramer, in effect. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it, it could literally be that simple. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, people also, Europe tends to have higher allocations to bonds. Um, yeah. So there's kind of a, in, in kind of um, in asset managers. So yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so you've got this thesis. Um, what do you do next? So we're back in, you know, 2014, 15, something back then, or did you sit on it yeah. for a bit or did it evolve more? But how did you then start thinking about how to construct a portfolio around it? Well, so I, it, it really started in 2016 and it started, um, well, I guess I, the germ of it probably started in 2014 when the dollar rallied, but I didn't really dig into it until 2016. And when I dug into it in 2016, my first conclusion was that the dollar was going to go a lot higher. Um, I hadn't gotten to the whole part of the whole milkshake yet, right? That was probably developed over the next couple of years. Um, but in 2016, I basically put out this presentation, which was basically a, um, it was called Step Into Liquid, but it was basically talking about these five different things that I thought were going to contribute to the dollar going higher and why, and, and it basically, the conclusion of that thesis was that the two most important assets that you can own over the next several years are dollars and gold. And the thesis was that the dollar, well, we, we would eventually get into a situation where the dollar and gold are rising together, right? Which is kind of contrary to most, most people who are buying gold are buying. So because of the belief that the dollar or their, their currency is going to lose value. So for me to come out and say the dollar and gold were going to rise together was a little bit, uh, I guess, contrarian, for lack of a better word. Um, and what I meant by that, it's not that they can't rise against each other simultaneously, but they can rise versus ev against everything else simultaneously. Right. And so that is when I that is when I probably um, um, started looking around the world for what we're going to be the negative side effects of the dollar getting stronger because the thesis told me this, I already own gold uh, and I already own the gold for clients. So the thesis to own gold for clients remained because I think that the spiking dollar, while it could hurt gold in the short term, eventually would just cause chaos in the monetary system itself. And as there's a chaos in the monetary system, gold would act as a safe haven and, um, you know, it would be the last man standing, so to speak. So I always think that somebody should own gold in their portfolio. But I'm not somebody who thinks that you should only own gold. You know, I think a 15, 20, maybe a 25% allocation, depending on who you are and um, several factors is appropriate. But I'm not somebody who thinks you should sell everything you own, buy gold, move to Montana and come back in 10 years. Um, I, think, uh, I think it's a crucial asset tone, but not the only asset. But then, you know, because I also, as my theory developed and, um, you know, I got to thinking that the U.S. stocks will rise, not because things are good, but because things are bad. Um, you know, I, I kept my my allocation to U.S. equities. But what I really started looking for was the negative knock on effects. Right. What could come out of nowhere as a result of the dollar getting stronger that we needed to try to protect against? Um, and so really the portfolio that I have now 
is really a matter of eliminating things as opposed to adding things. Um, and so, you know, the, let's call it the, the average port. Uh, yeah, you made a very good point at the very beginning of the show is not everybody is going to have the same portfolio. You know, you, it's hard to give portfolio, general portfolio advice when not everybody should have the same portfolio. Everybody's portfolio is probably going to be a little bit different, you know, kind of customized to their needs. And that's what I do for my clients. None of my clients have the exact same portfolio. Every portfolio is customized to them. Now they're all similar uh, and they all have similar themes in them, but nobody has the same portfolio. But really, as I as I, as this thesis has developed, it's been more an elimination of you know things from the portfolio rather than adding things to the portfolio. So as an example, we've owned equities for a long time, but in the last let's call it year to two years, we have gotten out of all of our international or for the most part gotten out of all international and all emerging market equities. So the equities that we own are primarily United States or North America, and they're primarily big blue chip dividend paying companies. Now that doesn't mean there's not an odd, you know, you know, if you own a, a Coca-Cola, they get a lot of their revenue from overseas, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that you don't have any exposure, but I'm not buying, uh, you know, listed companies in Brazil or um, Indonesia or the Philippines or, you know, Turkey or somewhere like that. Um, the other thing I've done is I have uh, eliminated long-term bonds. Now, I actually think that long-term bonds are actually probably going to do okay. But I think at this point, it's more of a trade than a thesis, you know, to, if you're long bonds. Um, you know, interest rates are at 5,000 years lows. The big move in interest rates is higher. Um, I actually think interest rates short term will probably go lower, perhaps even negative, but I don't want to bet a big part of my portfolio on that. So we've gotten rid of long term bonds and we own you know, kind of short to medium term bonds um, in our portfolio. Um, we've gotten out of a lot of different um, more venture type stuff and more uh, um, uh, what's the right way to say it? Higher risk, high reward type type equities, um, small caps and stuff like that um we still have technology because you know these big technology companies i think they're going to do relatively well compared to other assets but again we've kind of simplified our portfolio so we have short-term fixed income we have big blue chip u.s equities um we have gold um and then we have you know most of my clients have some form of private equity a lot of them are tech entrepreneurs or you know, et cetera, you know, uh, tech executives who, who, who've made money through, you know, starting companies or, or, or growth companies. So a lot of them have these, you know, private investments in, you know, startups, et cetera, et cetera. So there is some of that, but then, um, you know, we, we, we have, we've reduced a lot of our exposure to funds that do that type of stuff. Um, and then, you know, we have a fund which we set up ourselves and that we manage, um, which plays the knock-on effects of the dollar getting stronger. And that's kind of a hedge against the rest of the world kind of you know, blowing up, for lack of a better word. And in that fund, um, it's a, there, we seek out very asymmetric opportunities around the world. And so, you know, I would say, and those would pay off if traditional assets uh, were not doing well. And so I think, you know, the way that, that the way that I structure the portfolio is try to get into keep it relatively simple with most of the portfolio 
and then with a smaller percent of the portfolio, do some more complex and complicated stuff that has very asymmetric returns. If I get the asymmetric return part wrong, and I don't think anybody should do more than five or ten percent of their portfolio in these, you know, this, the, the, these volatility funds or these asymmetric type funds. And the way I think about it is that if I have ninety percent of the port or ninety-five percent of the portfolio in traditional assets, let's just call it a gold, um, U.S. equities, and short-term fixed income, and then I have five percent in this, uh, you know, asymmetric fund. If that asymmetric fund goes to zero. The only way that's going to zero is if we have a market like 2018 and 2019 where there's no volatility, there's low unemployment, markets are trending up and to the right, and um, you know things are generally good. If that if, if that's the type of market we're in, the 95 and and the 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 volatility fund that we're running goes to zero. That means we've that that's now gone from five percent to zero. Well, if that happens, then the 95 percent that's in these traditional assets has probably gone up 20 or 30% and more than made up for the 5% that we lost in the in in the volatility play. And but if we're right and there uh, there is a lot of global volatility and the traditional asset goes down 20 or 30%, under that scenario we think that the 5% has a legitimate shot of becoming 20 or 30% of the portfolio because those are the types of plays that we're making. And if that happens, then even if the 95% of the portfolio is impaired by 20 or 30%, the fact that the 5% has now become 20 or 30% keeps the portfolio whole. So it's one of these things where if I'm right, we're protected. And if I'm wrong, it hasn't killed you. And, and the reality is, is that most of my clients are already pretty wealthy. Actually, they all are, right? Um, now, you know, and, and, and so it's a kind of a high quality, you know, maximizing their returns is a pretty high quality problem. So, you know, and today, you know, when we've got COVID and people are out of work, you know, I understand the stuff that we're talking about here is, you know, definitely a first world problem. And, you know, the, the, these problems are minor compared to what a lot of people are going through. But at the end of the day, my job is not to make my clients rich. My clients are already very wealthy. My job is to figure out what their overall what their overall situation looks like, figure out where they want to go, and then develop a plan to help them get there. And you know, I think the first goal of anybody who has significant wealth is not to give it all away, right? So our first goal is try to protect what we have. And then the secondary goal is to make a fair return based on the level of risk that we're taking, you know, over over the next five, 10, 15 years, whatever their time horizon is. Um, and so you know, whenever you're making an investment decision, I, I think it's not that you're never going to be wrong. You're absolutely going to be wrong to think that you can operate in today's global macro environment with all these different, you know, economic and geopolitical risks out there and not get something wrong is it, just foolish. So, of course, you're going to get something wrong. So the goal is always to make money when you're right and not lose too much when you're wrong. And with the setup that I have now, I think if I'm wrong, we're actually still going to make a decent amount of money. But if I'm right, I think we're going to make a killing. Um, and so I think that's how I go about, uh, um, you know, setting up a portfolio. And again, it, it's going to be different for every person. But as a general sense, I think I think that's kind of how I think about it. Um, I probably rambled on for way nice. too long there. I apologize. I, I, but that, 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 that that's kind of how it goes. Not at all. It was super interesting. It's 
it's bizarrely similar to how my portfolio is. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, 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 as we were talking before, like that whole kind of, it's not always five to 10%. Sometimes it might be less than 5%. If I don't have like some, you know, like for example, in the last year, Euro dollar call options are in that bucket. Um, right. But, you know, and then and, and for example, um, I mean, there's basically options is in that bucket for me where they could clearly go to zero yep. or they could pay off lots and, you know, 5X, 10X, right. whatever. Um, and, but what's so interesting, and I know that a lot of people would, don't think what I'm about to say, but I know some people do. I think some people think your portfolio is like 100% US dollar call options. <laughs> and the one thing you <laughs> right. have not mentioned is anything to do with the actual US dollar directly. Now, I'm well aware you might, for example, have something in that 5 to 10% bucket that could, yeah. I mean, you know, an obvious example is I live in Hong Kong. There's a peg. Yeah. One can argue all day what's going to happen with that. Um, I think we disagree on this one, but yeah. that's the type of thing that has a gigantic asymmetry if it's correct. And you certainly don't, and you wouldn't put like 5% of a portfolio in that trade, i.e. the trade being the peg potentially breaking. Um, but I mean, the asymmetry is totally insane. I mean, it's like a... Well, and that's, that's out, exactly right. It's like a 50x, 100x type thing, if it, depending on how much it moved, but... Um, that's exactly right. And so, you know, I, I am of the opinion that the peg is going to break. I, I think you're of the opinion that it isn't. Um, but my, my, my point with is I think if, if the asymmetry of the trade is so good that it's worth putting a small percent of your portfolio into it, because if you're wrong, it doesn't hurt you. And if you're right to your point, you know, it literally um, has a, a, a tremendous upside. Um, now we have a, now I'd say the, the Hong Kong dollar trade, it's our biggest trade and it's our, it's our, it's our, um, it's our highest conviction position right now, but you know, we are well aware that it may not work. Um, and so we're not putting the whole fund or in our whole volatility bucket into that one trade. Um, but we have a number of trades similar to that, you know, around the world that if the dollar U S dollar gets stronger, we think we'll have these asymmetry type plays. You know, you talked about the euro dollar call option. You know, we we didn't do that particular trade, but we did it. We did the Canadian version of that, where we bought call options on. They're called uh, bankers acceptance notes, which are basically short-term Canadian bonds. And yeah. we bought call options on the bonds. And when the when interest rates you know dropped dramatically, you know those bonds went up a lot, and then the call options just exploded, right? And so that was a and, be, and we we did that because we felt that. You know, Canada was the last major central bank to, you know, stand by their 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 hawkish policy. We thought it was completely ridiculous. We knew that they would have to change from hawkish to dovish. And so that was the most asymmetric way we could find to, to play that particular thesis. Now, that one worked out. Um, and, uh, you know, and so we, we've kind of moved on from that one for now. But, you know, we think that there will be a number of trades like that over the next two to three years that we want to have a portion of our portfolio exposed to um, because again, when, when, when that paid off big in March, it helped offset losses in the other part of the portfolio. And that's really what this is. I mean, it is a hedge against global volatility, right? And, you know, you, it's, it's basically an insurance policy, you know, nobody, you know, buys insurance on their car and then hopes that they crash their car the next day. You know, nobody buys insurance on their house and then prays for a fire. But I, I talk to a lot of people who will buy, you know, put options on the SPY or whatever it is, 
and then they then they get really upset when it doesn't pay off. Um, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, it, it's kind of a different way of looking at it. But I, I think I think you have to be really honest with yourself about what your trades are for. If if you're doing a trade to hedge a portfolio, or if you're just purely speculating and trying to get rich. And I know a lot of people who will say, oh, it's, I'm just, just a hedge. It's just a hedge. But deep down, you know, they're swinging for the fences when they, they want to be George Soros. Um, and so, you know, depending on how that plays out, you know, the, they'll either be a hero or a zero, so to speak. But I think I think if you construct the portfolio appropriate, um, you know, you don't you don't have to live in that that extreme of, of hero or zero. I think that's a really good point. And I, I mean, a lot of my podcast with Raul last week was on that type of stuff. So, and one way I thought of it was, um, as in, I tell people, look, if you're, don't, don't celebrate if your whole portfolio goes up on a day, because it means there will right. be days where the whole portfolio goes down, like every position. And that means you're not as hedged as you think you are. Um, now, there were some weird days in the last six months where sort of, you know, we had days where bonds are up, gold was up, equities were up. Uh, there were probably days when the dollar was down. I, I, I can't remember, but then the opposite happened. And so, you know, if you feel like you're invincible when it's all green, well, you yeah. know what, that means you're going to have it all red someday too. So um, I, I just you know, think that, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. No, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I, I, I had planned to talk about that and I, I kind of forgot about it until, until you just mentioned it again. And that is that, um, you know, if you are managing your own portfolio or if you have somebody else managing your portfolio for you, whenever it's time to sit down and do a review of the portfolio, there's there, there, there are certain questions that you should ask. The first question you should ask is, um, you know, <laughs> are we doing well or are we doing poorly? And that, that's kind of a relative question. So, you know, the knock on to that is where are we making money? When you look at the portfolio, where are we making money? And hopefully there's a portion of the portfolio where you're making money, right? The second question should be, where are we losing money? And if the answer from your advisor or from your manager or whoever says, oh, we're not losing money anywhere, that should actually be a problem. You should not be thrilled to hear that. And this is my opinion, because if you are not losing money somewhere, then you are not diversified. Now, I guess if you don't want to be diversified, if you are a fan of concentration and you just want to, you know, you're willing to, you know, swing for the fences and ride the, the roller coaster up and down, then that's fine. But if you're looking to protect the downside and, you know, kind of steadily build your portfolio over time, you should always be losing money somewhere in your portfolio, because if you're not, you're not diversified. And to your point, that means that you're not just going to have the days where it's all green. You're going to have days where it's all red. And the whole point of diversification is to not have days where it's all red. Exactly. And I, I totally agree. And the, I think, I mean, I'm like relatively new to like being very active in, 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 in managing portfolio before uh, I was, you know, just, I just kind of had it in a bunch of uh, ETFs and left it really. Um, and what I found very difficult was, say on that euro dollar trade like i'd put frankly i'd put too much into it and i was a little over my skis on it um and um and and the i hadn't appreciated just the just the the, the mental aspects um and how you know and i wanted it and it was it was basically a it was kind of different right because it was a 
it wasn't really a hedge. It was more of a, well, I think rates are going to zero. So I kind of really yeah. didn't want it to work. Uh, and it was yeah. a big trade. But since, I've, since then, and I've put much smaller trades on, you know, maybe one or 2% in, into an options trade, which is very much as a hedge. Um, at first, I was still willing it to, I wanted it to go up. And I wanted everything else to go up. And then I realized I'm just being stupid. Like, yeah. to your point, you don't buy insurance on your car wanting to crash it unless you're incredibly weird. Um, and and I, I think I, I just learned that. It took me maybe six months to learn that. And so I'm, I'm glad I learned it that quickly because I think some people don't learn that in 60 years. So. Yeah, yeah. And then, I, I, you know, the other, the other thing to think about is that, you know, when... You, know, the, you need to, I think people need to decide whether they want to take a moderate amount of risk with their entire portfolio or take very little risk with most of their portfolio and then take a lot of risk with a very small percent of your portfolio, right? And, 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 and you can do that. For, for instance, you, you, could, you could take 98% of your portfolio and put it in a CD or a, you know, a treasury or just leave it in cash and then take 2% of your portfolio every year and just do some crazy, you know, asymmetric trades. Um, you know, something that, you know, you think that has a, has a, you know, reasonable chance of paying off. Um, and, you know, you've done the research and, and you want to make a bet, right? And so, and, and then, and then you, you take a high degree of risk with a, a small amount of the portfolio. Um, you know, and I think if, if, if you, if, if you're smart about it, uh, you know, and, and you can hit one out of five. So let's say over five years, you know, you, I guess you could theoretically have a 10% drawdown and you, but you know, if you hit one of them and it goes up 30 or 40 X, you know, now you're, you're ahead of the game. Um, but I guess my point is I, I do think you need to decide, um, or you need to have some kind of a, a plan of how you want to, 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 the overall portfolio to act and whether you want the entire thing to be um, have a risk associated with it, or if you only want a portion of it to have risk associated with it. That's the other thing. A lot of times I, I have, you know, a lot of people will come to me and they'll say, it just drives me crazy um, that I'm not making any money on my cash. You know, the fact that I can only get 20 basis points or 50 basis points or whatever it is in a money market fund. Uh, I just, I can't stand having cash. And, and, and I'm always like, are you kidding me? I love having cash. I mean, I mean, I sure, sure. I don't like only making 50 basis points on it. I wish interest rates were higher um, to where, you know, I could make money on a 10% cash allocation or a 15% cash allocation, but I don't have a problem with having 10 or 15% of the portfolio in cash, because if you have cash, you're going to make a hell of a lot more than one or 2% if you use it appropriately. And what I mean by that is if you had 10 or 15% in cash and you put it to work in March or April, well, you know what? You've made a heck of a lot more than a money market paying fund paying 2%. And, you know, uh, but, and there's all every year, there's always some asset class that gets way out of whack. And I think if you're smart about it, um, if you, if you all, if you're, if you have some cash in your portfolio and you wait for these opportunistic opportunities and maybe it's only a three month trade, maybe it's only a nine month trade, but if you have cash to put to work when these you know crazy things happen, I think you can make a lot more uh, by by using cash opportunistically than you would just having a two percent yielding you know cash money market fund so to speak. So I, I would tell people 
um, not to not to worry about having a cash allocation in their portfolio that's not yearning anything. Um, you know, the, the optionality that it gives you, I think, is well worth giving up. You know, 100 or 200 basis points. Yeah, I totally agree on that. Uh, I often have about that amount, 10 to 15 percent. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, I didn't think I was going to ask this question, but like you mentioned, obviously a lot of your, in effect, your, your clients are, let's say tech entrepreneurs. So, um, and, and on West coast. And so mm -hmm. how, how, how does Bitcoin fit into this? Because tech entrepreneurs tend to be, you know, they're probably further on the scale in terms of accepting things like that. And because yeah. one could argue it's in the five to 10%, let's just call it kind of the crazy hedge bucket, or you could argue it's, maybe part of the gold bucket or indeed the U S equities bucket. I mean, it's been most correlated yep. with U S equities recently, but, but I mean, two right. years ago it wasn't at all. So like it, it seems to just change all the time or do you just stick there a bit? Just wondering. Well, so I don't include it in my portfolios, uh, but I do uh, tell all my clients who are interested and, and I don't push it. I don't really push it. I do think that, uh, I think if you can afford to own some Bitcoin, you probably should, right? And I think it's kind of one of those things where the the, the downside to owning that, if, if, especially if you keep the the allocation within reason, right? Um, you know, to put one or two percent of your portfolio in Bitcoin, there's literally no downside to it, right? Because if you lose one or two percent, well, it's probably not going to kill you. But Bitcoin could literally go up a hundred times, right? I mean, you know, it, it is a truly asymmetric bet. So if you have a portion of your portfolio allocated to asymmetry, there's no reason not to include Bitcoin in that. Now, I happen to believe that Bitcoin is going to do pretty well. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of problems with the, with the the Bitcoin, and I shouldn't just say Bitcoin, the, the digital asset space. I, I do. And, I, and again, I, I understand that Bitcoin itself has never been hacked. And I understand that uh, it's this immutable code and da, 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 da. But, you know, I think the industry, it, it's, it's kind of the wild, wild west. And, and the regulators have gotten in there a little bit and made it a little bit better. Um, but, but to think that bad things can't happen in that, in that <laughs> emerging industry, I, I think, is naive. Um, I think a lot of bad things can happen in it. And I'm not one of these people who thinks that the government has no ability to uh, to to do anything to Bitcoin, I think it would be very easy for the government to prosecute a few people or a few industries or I mean or a few firms um, and cause a lot of negative press, so to speak, for Bitcoin, which would uh, which could um, you know hurt the price, so to speak. Now, do I think they can sh quote unquote shut it down? Not really. Um, I you know they can't really shut it down, so to speak without shutting down the internet, which they're not going to do. Uh, but they can make it extremely hard and extremely uh, unwelcoming um, for a few people and, and make examples of them, which would, in my mind, uh, you know, dramatically, I don't know what's the right way to say it, um, hinder the progression of it. Um, but I do, think, I do think the digital asset space is here to stay. I do think we're going to end up with, uh, you know, Fed coin and Euro coin and Yen coin and all these things. Um, and I think that I'm kind of one of these Bitcoin maximalists, I guess. I, I think if any coin is going to exist, it's good. You know, any non-country sponsored coin um, that's going to last, I think it will be Bitcoin. I just think the first mover advantage is, is big enough 
and I think the network effect is big enough that I, I you know, never say never, but I, I just don't see one of these new altcoins displacing, you know, Bitcoin and Bitcoin going by the wayside. Yeah, no, I think it's a good, good way to sum it up. I mean, I, I mean, I, as my listeners know, like I'm very long on Bitcoin, have been for a long time. Um, yeah. But then again, if you've owned an asset for six, seven years and had ups and downs, then you, you become quite comfortable with it as well. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the weak point, I mean, and first of all, I, I, it drives me nuts when like, I don't think you're really a Bitcoin maximalist in the way that you, know, in, uh, you are in what you said. But what I mean is that like a true Bitcoin maximalist is it, a lot of them are just like, well, of course, the government can't do anything about it. And it's like, well, at the end of the day, the right. weak point is fiat money to crypto. That's the weak point. It's when you interact with the current system. Well, yeah, I mean, they could pass a law to shut down Coinbase and Kraken and whatever in the US. Right. Right. Now, don't get right. me wrong, lots of exactly. governments around the world won't pass similar laws unless the whole world coordinates, which literally right. they've never coordinated on anything. So why would they coordinate on a $200 billion asset class? Seems a bit weird. But there are yep. weak points, absolutely. I'm much less concerned on the technical side of potential weak points. Um, but um, I think anyone that's investing in it, thinking it's impossible for something to happen, that's a really dangerous mindset to have. Um, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Um, alrighty, so... You know, I, I, you know, you, you just you just said something that I think is kind of interesting, and um, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it. But I, I would push back a little bit on something you just said about you know, um, you know, countries uh, and coordinating, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I would argue that in some ways the G20 or the G10 or the G8, however you want to define it, is to a certain extent a tax cartel. I mean, <laughs> they dress it up in all these altruistic things that you know we're trying to, you know, generate global growth and da da da. But I think at the end of the day. They're just trying to figure out how each of these countries maximizes their own tax revenue within their country while still dealing with each other. So I, th I think I think the idea that, that countries don't coordinate is is, is not exactly correct. But um, I also think we're getting into a period where a lot of that uh, coordination is, is breaking down and we're going from a, you know, kind of a globalized world to a, a fractured world. Yeah, no, I, 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 look, I totally take that point. I just don't think it's number one on their agenda right now. So, but That's that could true. be very yeah, different. I, I, Let's say it did 100x yeah. and it was worth similar to gold, which it would be very yeah. roughly. Then suddenly you're a much higher on an agenda. Um, yeah. So, right. you know, I Absolutely. Mean, if governments did that for $200 billion asset class, they're nuts. Um, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean, we could just call a spade a spade. You know, it's still a tiny yeah. asset. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. All righty. So, how about one thing I get asked about a lot is also is, you talked about portfolio and it makes a lot of sense and how do you like if someone's listening how should they they've got to make their mind up about what they want to invest in but how do you yep. enter those positions you know some people are like oh well i've made my mind up i must enter every position today because i want to be fully allocated and others are like whoa like you know you should be really slow and buying the dips and there's no rush here and um and, but as a professional money manager of course you know you you can't sit there with 100 percent cash for like six months um, right. Probably right. can't. Um, and um, so how do you think through that? Well, I think I think it largely depends on the time frame for the trade. Now, <laughs> you know, this gets into where you say, you know, when somebody initiates a trade and it and it goes their way right away, it's a short term position. And when it goes against them, it, it gets shifted from the short term position into a long term course, trade. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I mean, that, that, that that's the typical thing. But I, I would say that when I am putting a portfolio, 
if somebody came to me with $10 million in cash, it would be very unlikely that I would invest it all on the very first day, right? I would more than likely leg into a portfolio over a series of weeks to months, you know, and then that would be done in consultation with the client based on what they're trying to accomplish. Um, so from that perspective, if you're entering kind of a multi-year trade, then I kind of would dollar cost average into it. But if you, if, if, if you, if, if there's a big dislocation in somewhere, like as an example, I didn't do this trade, but let's just use it as an example. When oil, you know, went negative in May, right? If you were someone who felt like, you know, oil is going to rebound and you see that big of a, that big of a dislocation and you're just doing it for a short term trade, then I think you go in and you go in big right away. I don't think you dollar cost average into that because because, you know, things are just so out of whack. It's 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 going to even if even if oil is going to stay down, there's going to be a dead cat bounce. Right. So I think if if, if you have let's say you use a number of let's say you use things like uh, charts, technical analysis, uh, RSI, you know, relative sentiment and some kind of fundamental analysis. Right. And you get a situation where, you know, the 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 asset is sitting at multi-year support on technical analysis. The sentiment says that it's, you know, as low as it's been in five years. And you have fundamental reasons to believe that um, it's going to be much higher or it should be much higher. And, and you're look and you're doing it as a speculative trade, not a long term investment. Then I would go in big and go in big right away. And, and not try to dollar cost average into it. And, you know, I think, and that's why I say, I think you have to be really honest with yourself of whether it's a speculation or whether it's a, whether it's a long-term investment. Um, the nature of speculative trades is, you know, they're very, you know, <laughs> high risk, high reward. Um, so if I'm doing a speculative trade, I go in big and I go in hard. And if I'm doing a, a, a multi-year investment, then I, then I kind of dollar cost average in. So, and, you know, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule, but that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. And I think, um, I mean, often now for, for whatever reason, and it may be because of the rise of passive investing, which I probably, you know, Mike Green spoken most about, you know, you yep. can get yep. these, like, I mean, if you look at the gold or silver markets, right now we can get into the, all the conspiracy theories if we want on, <laughs> on yep. the bullion <laughs> banks or whatever, but yeah, it, it kind of drives me a little nuts because I see people, especially on silver, uh, which obviously has has higher beta. So like, um, always complaining when it kind of rockets down, you know, in like a five minute yep. candle that look makes it look like a Bitcoin <laughs> and right. um, or Bitcoin from five years ago. And um, I'm always thinking, okay, well, if you're so convinced that there's this cartel and whatever, like, why are you trading this asset? There's a million other assets you can trade, and they only seem to complain yeah. when it goes down. Um, but, um, it's, um, yeah, no, it's, um, it, 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 it's, I lost my train of thought a little bit on that. So, um, we're talking about, oh yeah, the dips. So like, um, but, but what happens on that market is it tends to then recover quite quick. Um, and it has these very V shape, an actual V shape, uh, kind of, um, thing to it. So I've often bought gold silver on those and I've actually tried to catch the falling knife a little bit which isn't yep. necessarily a good thing to do, but I found that easier on gold than silver. Um, 
and um, but but they're very fast um and it just feels with all the and whether it's to do with more passive money you, you can get these incredibly short sharp corrections um i mean you know bitcoin's been well known for it for a long time and if you're ready and you're confident you can absolutely do really well on getting into those but of course now and yeah. again it's just going to keep falling so <laughs> Uh, well, let, well let, let, let me, and here's the thing I would say is these trades that I'm talking about, this kind of goes back to having that cash that I was talking about as well, right? Like if you see this amazing trade setup and you have cash that is just sitting there for opportunistic opportunities, then I think that's the case in which you use it. But the second thing I would say is that these opportunities that I'm talking about this is like once or twice a year. This is not like once or twice a week, right? I mean, you have to be really, really patient and you, and you have to, you have to, you don't have to, but if, if you want this speculative capital to last, you have to wait until it's almost a sure thing. Now, nothing is ever a sure thing, but trust me, sure things don't come along twice a week. They come along maybe once or twice a year and you have to be patient and wait for it. And it means you have to let a lot of decent trades go by. You know, you, you mentioned Raul earlier. He said something to me one time, which, which uh, um, I thought was really, really good. And he said, he said, listen, Brent, the, the trades come and go every day. We all see trades that we can do, uh, but most of the time you shouldn't do them. But every now and then you see a trade that is so either asymmetric or so potentially profitable that even if you're wrong, even if you end up being wrong, the right trade, the right thing is to do the trade, right? And so I'll, I'll give you an example. In in the in December of 2000, I think it was 18, um, when Powell raised rates for the last time, um, the market sold off. What was it? 20 percent or 25, 20 or 25 percent over two weeks something like that. And on, I believe it was Christmas Eve, or no, I think it was the day after Christmas. I think it was December 26th. Um, you know, the markets opened lower again. And at that time, um, I remember the sentiment on equities was lower than it had been in the depths of 2008. And I just thought it was absolutely ridiculous. So I bought a lot of call options <laughs> on the on equities on the morning of the 26th and you know we then of course powell did his u-turn right um and equities rallied really hard in january and i i sold them after like two weeks um now equities continued to do well through most of 2019 after that big u-turn um but but by just going in big on that day when there was absolute panic and, you know, sentiment was close to zero. Um, and I just felt like I knew we were going to get at least a short-term bounce that like selling, buying those calls and then selling them two or three weeks later gave me, it allowed me not to have to take as much risk towards the end of 2019. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in other words, take, take risk when nobody else is taking it. And then that will allow you not to have to take it when everybody else is. Right. It's the same as, um, I mean, it's basically taking risk, which could be different ways, right? I mean, you buy in call options and equities, it could be buying insurance when it's cheap, i.e. when volatility sure. is low. Sure. No, exactly. So it, there's different it, exactly. ways you can do it. But I always tell people, yeah, it's like, you know, gold about two, three months ago, 
went really low vol, like it was about 14, which is pretty much where it was for a lot of 2019. It wasn't quite back to where it was, but considering what's happened in 2020, it was clearly quite low yep. and it's been trending up yep. and that's very bullish and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, wow, it's a great time to kind of lock in some low volatility and some long-term gold options. And to me that felt, and, it, and also the price had just corrected and, and it was consolidating, yep. which was, you know, keeping the vol low and it, that to me felt like one of those moments. Um, it could absolutely have been right. wrong. Um, right. And um, so, but yeah, they certainly don't come along every week. Um, how do you think about volatility? I mean, do you actually trade any, you know, a lot of people hear about going being long vol and it's obviously a way to have this insurance. Are you thinking overtly about volatility and trading it or just well, having I it in terms of you have options and stuff I, like that? I do, but probably not in the way that you're meaning. So in other words, like our, our fund that we manage, I mean, it is basically, it's basically a long vol fund, right? Like if vol really spikes, that fund is going to do extremely well. If vol is really low, it's not going to perform well. So we basically have a quote unquote vol allocation, a long vol allocation. Um, I'm not trading volatility specifically the way Mike Green does. Um, in the way that Chris Cole does, um, so, but it, so so I'm not necessarily trading the asset class, I, but I, but I we have a number of positions that are kind of the knock-on effects of vol rising dramatically, and then in addition to that, like most of our clients have a lot of equities that they've owned for a long time, and so rather, but but I think that. I think that there's times where you should be long equities and then there's periods of time. And maybe this period of time is only two or three months where you should not be long equities, but rather than selling these positions and, and triggering these gains, you know, that are pretty very significant at this point, um, we will often, you know, hedge the portfolio by buying puts or, you know, doing a collar on it, selling calls, buying puts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so from that perspective, you know, we try to use volatility wisely and we, we try to have these, you know, when, when, when vol is low, we'll try to buy some protection. If we think we're, we're looking towards, you know, having some vol coming up uh, or, or, or a period of equity weakness coming up. And, you know, if we're really high vol and we think it's going to die down, then maybe we'll sell some calls, um, you know, cause we don't mind getting called away on, on a few positions. So from that perspective, we, we will play volatility a little bit, but I don't have a specific, I, I don't trade the VIX, for, for for example. Yeah. And by the way, most people listening, you should not be trading the VIX. So please be very aware <laughs> right. of products that are not what you think. And right. There's a lot. There's a lot of good YouTube videos on them from people that have got burnt yeah. by it. So. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to trade vol, call Mike Green. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I live in San Francisco and I happen to know Mike and get to speak with him fairly often and. Um, you know, the idea that I'm going to trade vol better than Mike is just, it's just crazy. So, you know, I, you know, whenever I, whenever I am doing a lot of stuff with, with vol, you know, he's one of the first calls that I make. And, you know, I, I guess my, the point that I'm making is that, you know, you, you can be in this industry for a very long time and still have no idea what you're doing with regard to volatility. So if you're an individual trying to trade volatility, I think you're probably better off finding a, a quality manager to do it for you than trying to do it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how about taking profits? So we kind of touched on it a bit, but you know, are you, I mean, there's different ways to go about this, right? You know, you could be rebalancing every quarter or every year or whatever it is and yeah. kind of forcing yourself to 
uh, reallocate amongst the buckets uh, that we talked about um, or versus like, you know, letting something ride. I mean, if it's like Raul's point is if yeah. something's working, let it keep, you know, let it ride. Um, now, of course, it's going to be a bigger and bigger part of the portfolio. And so that starts getting mentally a bit more difficult too. Um, so how, how do you think through all that? It's really, really hard. <laughs> you know, I, it, 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 I think in many ways buying is much easier than selling. Um, I agree a hundred percent on that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's, I've gotten better at it over time, but I, I wouldn't still say that it's easy. Um, I think, I think it, again, it goes back to, I think you have to be honest with yourself about which portion of your portfolio is for long-term and which portion of your portfolio is for shorter term, um, you know, um, more, uh, speculative type trades. Like if you, if you, if you have, let's say you have a big portfolio and you have a couple advisors helping you or managing for you, but you have a portfolio that you kind of do speculative trades on your own. And you think that, like you said, you bought gold on a dip because you think it might rally over the next couple of weeks. Well, then I think you need, and maybe that's not your physical long-term gold allocation, right? Well, if you buy gold at, you know, 1800 and it rallies to 1860, then you should probably recognize that that's your speculative bucket. You should probably sell it, right? If you made 1% or 2% or maybe you bought options and, you know, those options doubled or tripled when gold went up 3 or 4% you should probably, you know, take the, the profit quicker um, than otherwise, right? Uh, but if it's, if, if you have a, let's say you have a long-term physical gold position and you're a, you hold that as insurance and because you think, you know, global currencies are going to be debased and you have the view that gold's going to 3000 bucks or whatever it is. Well, when gold goes from, you know, 1500 1800 then you probably shouldn't sell that um so i think i i think i think it really goes back to being honest with yourself and and understanding the role that different parts of your portfolio play um you know again i'm of the belief that everybody should have some portion of their portfolio set up for speculative trades now whether that's one percent or ten percent you know that kind of needs to you know you know made on an individual level it's not something that i can really tell you uh, but I think once once that decision has been made, I think you should take profits quicker in your speculative portfolio and take profits not as quick in your kind of longer term thesis plays. Yeah, no, that's, that's very good advice. Um, how, about, how about we talked about beyond the milkshake as in going from the milkshake to kind of the actual portfolio. But how about yeah. after the milkshake? Like what, what, what are you thinking yeah. the kind of five to 10 year horizon? I don't even know if that's the right time horizon. Yeah. But. Um, you know, yep. there's a lot of, again, this is where I think gold bugs and Bitcoiners agree literally 99.9% .9 on their thesis, but like, um, they don't agree on the last bit of course, but, um, yeah. what's your kind of long-term view on all this? Well, so, you know, I have said on more than one occasion that I think that this dollar trade is the greatest trade in history and, and, and it's a little bit kind of tongue in cheek, but the truth is I actually believe it. I really do think it is. I, I think it's so asymmetric and I think so few people understand the dynamics that when it happens or if it happens and when it happens that I think it will, I think the, the, the amount of money to be made, I think is truly staggering. Um, now that said, I actually also think that this trade, <laughs> that the dollar trade is really just the setup for the next trade. 
And what I mean by that is that I think that this dollar trade could play out over the next year to two to three years. But I think after that plays out, then I think the next 10 years is to just do the exact opposite. So if, if, if I turn out to be right and the dollar spikes and that's going to cause a lot of chaos for the rest of the world and it's going to cause a lot of good assets to trade at very cheap prices. So the idea is that if we make money on this dollar trade will be to take the profits that we make on the spiking dollar and turn around and buy everything that has been you know, blown up or decimated or, or is in distress. Um, and so that will mean buying things like emerging markets, right? Maybe emerging market currencies, maybe emerging market debt, maybe uh, emerging market real estate, maybe buying um, you know, apartment complexes in Rome or wherever it is, places that where, where those assets have been, have been you know, really hurt and we can you know, kind of take our, our profits uh, from being long dollar and basically go short the dollar. Because what I think is going to happen is the dollar is going to get so strong that they're going to have to come up with a new system. And either through a plaza accord type thing or um, a whole new monetary system rollout or whatever it is, they're going to have to devalue the dollar. But there, there's, it's not going to happen yet because there hasn't been anywhere near enough pain yet. Um, and I don't think that, uh, I, you know, the global reserve currency has never really relinquished. It's always taken. Um, and so, you know, the, despite the fact that in some ways the, the having the global reserve currency is a curse, the benefits far outweigh the curse. And so, you know, I don't think that's going to happen until a lot more pain has been experienced. Um, but the idea is that once it does happen, um, that I think that the dollar will be in a long-term decline. And maybe it goes from, you know, well, I've, I've, I've been on record saying it's going to go back to its all-time high. So maybe, you know, if the dollar goes to 150, then it goes back to 100 and down to 70 or whatever it is. Um, but if we can be on the, if, if we can get even close to timing that, right, and we can buy a bunch of non-dollar assets and then let those, you know, as assets that we have bought uh, appreciate not just in, you know, economic terms, but in currency terms, um, you know, as the dollar weakens and those foreign currencies uh, rise in value, um, then I think that could be a long-term um, trade where you could almost just buy these assets and sit back and, you know, for five or 10 years and just watch them appreciate. Yeah, I, I really like what you said that global reserve currency is taken, not relinquished. I think that's, uh, I've been looking into that quite a lot recently. You know, the last six, in the last 600 years has been yeah. six from Portugal, yeah. Spain to Netherlands to France to UK to US and pretty much taken when there's a war <laughs> like you can right you know, well and, and, and I think World War yeah. One, like, yeah. and, and you know the, the, there's a number of people out there who have said you know at this point that the, the, the dollars no longer the, the the global reserve status is no longer helping the US it's actually hurting the US it's hurting our manufacturing da 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 and from an economic and from a capitalistic standpoint, there's probably some truth to that. But I think what people forget is that the global reserve currency is not just an economic tool. It is a political tool. Exactly. It is not, it's not about economics. It's about power. And, you know, power, you know, with the exception of George Washington and the, 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 the Roman leader Cincinnatus, it's never given up right? Nobody ever relinquishes power. 
um, you know, it's, it, 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 it always has to be taken. And the idea that you have the biggest weapon in the world, and make no mistake, the U.S. dollar is the biggest weapon in the world. Um, it, it, it can be wielded like a sword, um, you know, at will. Now, it, it, the, is there a blowback when that is done? Yeah, so that's why they're trying to kind of, they're kind of careful about how it can be used. But the U.S. dollar and the U.S. dollar payment system is an incredible weapon. It is an incredible an incredibly powerful political tool. Um, and, you know, the politicians and the monetary authorities who wield it, they're not so much worried about it from an economic standpoint as they are from a power standpoint and a geopolitical standpoint. And the idea that they're just going to give it up because it would save a few million dollars or a few billion dollars, I think, is, uh, I think is to misunderstand the purpose of it to begin with. Yeah, I've I've said the same thing several times. It, it it's not the U.S.'s nukes or the army or the navy or even the space force these days. Um, right, <laughs> the biggest weapon they have. That was the best tweet he did when he did those twenty-eight million tweets in three seconds. Was space force vote? <laughs> that was awesome. Um, all right. Well, I thought maybe end on a yeah. like a lighter note, which is like, um, look, you're you're really well known on FinTwit, and like, and you get trolled a lot. So, I mean, if the Dixie goes basically <laughs> down by 0.01%, then the trolls are coming out. How do you yeah. deal with it? Because I think you have a very different way to some. Some just block everyone, yeah. which I get yeah. to, um, because it can be pretty maddening. Um, what's, yeah, how do you deal with it? <laughs> well, <laughs> there, there's a couple sides to it. Um, the first thing I would say is that it, <laughs> so I grew up playing basketball and I played basketball all through college. And, you know, it was talking some trash was always just part of the game. And it was never really personal. And it was always, you know, just kind of you try to get in the other guy's head and try to get them off their game a little bit. So a little back and forth. I actually don't mind it. You know, when people try to give me a hard time, especially if it's clever and it's funny, I actually will give them credit for it. Right. Um, and so from that perspective, I don't mind it. Uh, the other thing is that I feel like with this particular subject, I've done at least as much, if not more work than my adversary, so to speak. And so I have, I feel like I probably have a higher degree of confidence. And so I'm willing to, you know, go to battle, so to speak. And then the other part of it is that I just really don't care what anybody else thinks. I really don't. So if they want to call me an idiot or if they want to tell me I'm wrong, well, that's fine. You know, I learned a long time ago that I do better when I think for myself rather than just taking what somebody else says, you know, and, and running with it. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't listen. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't take their uh, opinion into account. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't, um, you know, consider uh, some new fact that maybe you didn't know about and they've, they've alerted you to. But, it, but at the end of the day, if you don't trust yourself, then, you know, you shouldn't be in this game to begin with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when an, an anonymous Twitter user with no picture gives you a bit of trash talk, yeah. I mean, not really. Yeah. Uh, it's not really. Well, then, but the, 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 there is another part of it, though, too, is that is, um, well, num number one, this is a very stressful industry, right? And, you know, you, you can just let it drive you crazy. And, you know, in many ways, Twitter is just endlessly entertaining, right? And it's and it, it, a lot of people, it drives them crazy and it stresses them out. But it, for me, that it's actually a stress reliever 
because if I can go on there and I can, you know, jaw back and forth a little bit with somebody and, you know, it'll be kind of fun and maybe I get a laugh out of it. But, you know, the other part of it is every now and then you learn something new. Right. And maybe it yeah. does come from that guy who's only got 14 followers and is an anonymous person. Um, you know, I, I've I've always found some of the smartest people are the most some of the most unassuming people. Right. And so I'm always open to hearing something. And every now and then you will somebody will say something that, you know, it'll it'll put a little splinter in my brain. I'm like, you know what? I didn't really like the way that guy said it, but it was actually a good point. And then I'll have then I'll go look it up and, you know, maybe I learned something new. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I changed my mind, but maybe I learned something from it. So to me, it's all kind of part of the game. Um, it's kind of fun. Um, I kind of like, uh, you know, I, I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind uh, when people give me a hard time um, because, listen, I have been pretty vocal about this. Right. If I turn out to be wrong, I'm going to be given a hard time. And the truth is, I will deserve it. <laughs> you don't you shouldn't get to go out and make all the noise I've made and then be wrong and have no consequences. Right. But the flip side is, if I turn out to be right, then I'll deserve some credit as well. Right. And I think that I will be right. And I'm I've done enough work that I'm willing to put my 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 opinion out there. And I hopeful hope I hope that I get rewarded for it. Now, does that mean that my world's going to collapse if I'm wrong? Of course not. I've been wrong many times in my life. I'm going to be wrong many times more. Um, you know, but uh, I think every now and then when, when you see you have an edge, you have to play it and you have to push it and you have to press it. And that's kind of where I am with the dollar. Like, I think I have an edge. And, um, you know, when you have an edge, uh, you should try to uh, try to exploit it. That's a great place to end, Brent. So how, how can people learn more about you? I guess it's fairly obvious, Twitter, but any, <laughs> um, is that the best place or? Anywhere else? Or? Well, you know, yeah, you know, I do. I think people are welcome to email me or call me. Um, SantiagoCapital.com is my website. All it has is my contact information there. It has my phone number. It has my email. Um, I will say that uh, in the last six months, the the, the amount of, uh, you know, emails and stuff I get has increased dramatically. So it's not as easy to respond to everybody, but I will try. So feel free to feel free to email me, free to, feel free to send me an email or, or a DM on Twitter. Um, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I do a number of podcasts and interviews and I actually really enjoy interacting with, with people. So, um, you know, if you send me an email and I don't respond, uh, you know, feel free to send another one. Sometimes it just gets overloaded. I'm not able to get back to everybody, but I do, I do, uh, I do appreciate people listening to the podcast that I'm on and the interviews and, and the back and forth. So, you know, I say thank you to you. I appreciate you having me on. It's always uh, it's always fun to talk about this stuff and you know learn something new and you know maybe we'll all get through this with a little bit of a skin intact. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, Brent. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.